earlier this year, I put together a list of goals that I hoped would help me steer the podcast into exciting new territory. I have tons of ideas and big hopes for the future of SSR. One of my goals was to incorporate some new categories of books into our lineup, including some books that weren't actually written for tweens or teens. The adult books I had in mind may have been published before YA was really a thing. Perhaps more important though, they have been read widely by many young people over the years, helping them fuel their reading appetite from an early age. This week we cover one such book, Agatha Christie's And Then There Were None. Published in 1939, And Then There Were None is widely considered by many to be the most important mystery novel ever. It's also one of the most popular. Today's guests have been influenced by Christie's work in their own writing, and you are going to love hearing from them about lots of juicy writing stuff. Before I go any further, I want to address And Then There Were None's racist legacy. While it is a beloved mystery, its history is deeply problematic. We will talk more about that shortly, as well as what we as readers can and should do about it. On episode 246, we also talk more generally about books with problematic legacies, Christie's contributions to the mystery genre, the way the And Then There Were None model has been changed and improved over time, the role of class and privilege in mysteries, the challenges of writing a mystery, what kind of writer Agatha Christie might be in 2023, why we should give teen readers more credit, and our favorite characters from the book. To tackle all of this with me today, I have not one, but two thoughtful, successful authors on the show, Kathleen Glasgow and Liz Lawson. Kathleen Glasgow is the New York Times bestselling author of Girl in Pieces, How to Make Friends with the Dark, and You'd Be Home Now. She lives and writes in Tucson, Arizona, and you can follow her on Instagram at Miss Kathleen Glasgow. Liz Lawson is the author of The Lucky Ones. She lives with her family and two very bratty cats in the DC metro area. You can find her on TikTok and Instagram at LZLWSN. That's her name without any vowels. Together, Kathleen and Liz are the authors of the best-selling novel, The Agathas. The follow-up to The Agathas, The Night in Question, is available now. One quick note, while recording this episode, we were lucky enough to be joined by Liz and Kathleen's cats. While they were mostly respectful listeners, you might hear a little background noise here and there, which is probably them purring. It was very cute. I share a lot about my own furry friend on SSR's Instagram, at SSRpod. I always joke that people go there to learn more about the podcast and what I'm reading, but today for my hilarious golden retriever, Irving. Irvin, I would love to see you over on Instagram, as well as on Twitter at SSRPod, and on Facebook when you search the SSR Podcast or the SSR Book Club. And while Irv hasn't exactly come out and said it in words, I think he would also be very grateful if you left a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Make sure you're following and or subscribed as well. The hosts of every podcast you listen to are constantly making these asks of you because they really do make a difference. Patreon support also makes a big difference to independent podcasts like mine. In case you missed it, Patreon is a platform that connects independent creators, like me, with the fans of the things they create. For just a few dollars per month, as little as one dollar per month actually, you can take pride in knowing that you are helping the show continue. Plus, you'll get access to tons of fun rewards. Here's what one patron recently had to say about the community. There are more benefits to enjoy than one can assess on any of the descriptions on Patreon or Instagram. It's worth trying the $5 or $10 once to get the full experience. If you're interested, you can learn more and give it a try at www.patreon.com SSRpodcast or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. Shout out to every single one of SSR's amazing patrons listening to this episode. Are you ready to treat yourself to a little reading material to kick off the summer? Of course you are. I encourage you to support independent bookstores when you do. Shop for audiobooks with Libro.fm and for physical books at bookshop.org. Treat yourself to some new books at either or both of these places at the link in SSR's Instagram bio at SSRpod. You deserve it, and I can't wait to see what you get. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old-school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine, 
we're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR podcast. Hi, Liz. Hi, Kathleen. Welcome to SSR. Hi, thanks for having us. Yes, thank you so much. Today we are talking about And Then There Were None. And I want to preface this conversation by reminding listeners that I'm trying to move this year more into conversations about books that weren't necessarily like written for the YA audience, because I think so many of us who are book lovers grew up reading books that were not necessarily written for kids or for teens. I mean, the YA category is kind of new, relatively speaking anyway. And so I'm really excited that we have you on today to talk about an Agatha Christie book that was never intended to be read specifically by kids. So I do think this is a book that a lot of teenagers in particular read as they're getting into the mystery genre. So thank you for helping me uh, continue to break into this type of conversation. Yeah, we're very excited to be here. Now, you are the writers of a series called The Agathas, the second installment of which actually comes out the day this episode goes live. And I think it goes without saying that you are big Agatha Christie fans, which is why we landed on this book for this episode. Could I ask you to share a little bit about your love for Agatha Christie and about this book specifically and where that comes from? I grew up, I mean, I grew up reading pretty much everything, but when I discovered Agatha Christie when I was younger, I just remember plowing through like, I don't know, like 10 of her books in a row. The plots are so interesting. The fact that like they still, I mean, to this, even now after having read like a million mysteries in my life and seen so many different, you know, mystery shows, I'm still surprised by her endings and like amazed by how well she has plotted. She like, what a good job she did plotting all her books, how quickly she wrote. I mean, that's really, I'm impressed by. So to me, like she is, she's like one of the foundational authors I read growing up. And, and I, it was just like such a fun thing to be able to use her works in a book that we are writing. Yeah. How about you, Kathleen? So when I was a teenager, I wasn't necessarily reading a ton of mysteries. I was reading a lot of crime fiction. I don't know if you've read any Andrew Box. I haven't. He passed away. I think he passed away last year. He wrote a Burke series and then he wrote a really great book called Bluebell. And his books were primarily concerned with the mistreatment of children. He was a former social worker and a lawyer who fought for the rights and lives of children in New York City. And then he translated that into his work. So his books are, they're pretty graphic. And I guess for lack of a better word, like hard boiled. And I don't think that I got into like the classic structure of a mystery novel until my twenties when I read some Agatha Christie. And what I really like about Agatha Christie is that I like how she structures her books. Like they're very tightly structured and tightly plotted and that she never forgets that the way to keep a reader reading is really through the characters and your discovery of the characters' motivations and their backstory and where they come from. And I also love her use of objects in each book and the importance of objects, especially ones that you don't, you might not think are important in the beginning of the book. Was And Then There Were None a standout for either of you in your introduction to Agatha Christie? Obviously it's like her most, her most beloved novel. It's the most popular mystery of all time, but I just would love to hear if you have specific memories of this book. I remember reading it and thinking, thinking how impressive it was, you know, I mean, especially at the time, it was the first book, I think, ever, the first mystery ever to do what she did in the book. I mean, the twist of like, somebody coming back that you thought was dead. It, I mean, it's done so many, it's been done so many times at this point. But like back then, I think readers were shocked by it. And I was shocked by it when I read it. And I remember particularly falling in love with the book after seeing I think it was like a BBC adaptation of it and seeing it on screen just made it that much more real. And yeah, I mean, I, I think that like, it definitely stood out to me. Some of her books, the way that she writes, it, it can be, if you read a ton in a row, they get slightly repetitive after a while, but this one breaks from the mold. So I think that what's appealing to me and probably readers like everywhere is that when you're trapped with a bunch of people that you don't know, you start thinking things like, I wonder what secrets they have. And you make up stories about them and their backstories. Like, I wonder if they've ever done something like really, really bad. And right, and everyone has secrets. And I think that that's one of the appeal, appeals of the book. It's like, if you translate that to being like 15, 
and you're trapped in this school or in this classroom with like 15 other people that you don't really like. And some of them you think you know, but you probably don't. And then people start getting picked off one by one. I think that that's really appealing, especially to a young reader, like, okay, well, this could happen to me. Like, what if this happened in my high school? You know, and that would bring us to like Karen McManus novels where <laughs> kids are basically like at war with one another in a mystery setting. And so I, I think it really appeals to our deeper sense of like, do we really know that person like sharing this island with me or like in this hotel with me that I keep ending up like riding an elevator with? I mean, don't you both think that whenever you go someplace like that, when you go on vacation or Liz, you go on vacation all the time and you post pictures of you sitting around a pool and like, don't you start looking at a person across the pool and like wondering about them? I'm always very curious about other right? people. Like, I think it's one of the reasons I became a writer. I'm always like, if I meet somebody once, I'm kind of like, oh, I wonder what their backstory is. And then I'll like start making up a story of my own about them for sure. Yeah, I'm a pretty obsessive people watcher. So anytime yeah. I'm pretty much anywhere, even if I'm sitting like on my front porch, listening to my neighbors. Last weekend, I was sitting on the front porch and this is just, I don't know why anybody would do this, but the husband and wife in the house across the street from me were having a fight about yard work on a city street. And I was like, I was, you know, of course, like leaning forward a little bit just to hear. And I, of course, invented like the whole backstory about what right? happened before that. And then what happened after they went inside. And so, yes, I am very on board with that feeling of of wanting to know what's going on with other people. And to your point, Kathleen, like if I was trapped on an island with all of these people, it would be that much more important to me that I tried to get a handle on what was going on. So let me just ask you, I mean, if you didn't see that neighbor's wife for three weeks or so, would you start investigating? Because you'd say they had a really loud public fight and I haven't seen her in like three weeks. And there's a new tree planted in his backyard. Why? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Right? I yeah. Mean, so I, yeah. I, think that, I think that stories like these mysteries in particular have a way of attracting and keeping readers because in some ways, your fantasies, you can live vicariously, like through the characters, right? Yeah, absolutely. And through the structure of the story because you're like, okay, who's next? And you, you want to think that you can figure it out before the book tells you what happened. And so I think it's a real, I mean, it's, it's a good, it's a good sort of escapism. Absolutely. Now, before we really dig into the particulars of, and then there were none, I do of course want to address the elephant in the room about this book, because I have heard from several of my followers on social media when they saw that I posted that I was reading it, they're like, do you know the controversy behind this book? And so we would be remiss, of course, not to address it. And the big thing here is that when the book was first published in 1939 in the UK, it had a different title, and I'm not going to say the title, just not going to say it, but the title did include a, a very intense, very offensive, very problematic racial slur. And the same slur as a result worked its way through the whole novel because the book centers around this poem called Ten Little Soldiers. And so if you think about the many references that we get to those soldiers and to the poem itself throughout the story, substitute the word soldiers for that racial slur and it appeared again and again and again and again throughout the book and so because of that this book while it is beloved and why while it has sold over 100 million copies at this point it also has this really problematic racist legacy mm -hmm. that it's hard to separate and it is kind of fascinating to me like and of course, in 1939, in the 40s, when this all happened, like we weren't having these conversations. So it was easier to overcome that kind of legacy. But it is when you think about, again, the conversations we're having now, the fact that that book, that this book overcame that and has gone on to be like the most adapted mystery ever and has sold all these copies. It is kind of wild. I think that's a really good conversation to have. I definitely don't like thinking of that when I think about my enjoyment of the book, but it's something that you can't really separate at this point. And I think that that's a legacy that we have with a lot of classic literature. I think that's a question that readers need to grapple with when they're picking up a book, whether they know about its history beforehand or whether they discover it while they're reading the book. And you have to, you have to make up your own mind. Like, am I going to keep my enjoyment of this book the way it is? Or am I, am I going to really address like my reading this book and its legacy? Do you know what I mean? I think it's a good question because you read To Kill a Mockingbird when you're younger 
right? And no, when I read it, and I'm older than both of you, like that wasn't discussed in school, like the perspective of the book and what, you know, systemic racism might be inherent in the book. We would read that differently today. And I think that's a really good thing. Mm -hmm. I think it's really good to reevaluate works that were considered classic that have these elements of painful racism and systemic racism within them that were not addressed at that time because no one thought about that at the time, right? And that was wrong. And I think it's good if you're teaching this book, you can pair that with some modern retellings and you can pair it with a discussion of what was going on socially and culturally at that time. And you can pair it with a discussion of, well, should we talk about the author at this moment and why the author thought that this was okay? And then you can pair it with what should we do with this book now in like our collective memory of literature? What do we do with it? Those are all great points, Liz. Do you have any other thoughts? I think it's important to have those conversations. And I think that we need to, I think that, and this is something that in a whole different way is being discussed right now also in terms of like all the book bans that are happening. But I think that we do not give teenagers enough credit. You know, if you're going to read this book in school, I think that having those conversations is really important. And I think that teenagers are have the ability to have those conversations and to think deeply about important topics and like social issues and giving people that chance is what helps you learn to think critically because you know you're going to be confronted by text in your life it's going to be it, it would be impossible never to be confronted by something that was offensive or problematic and like learning to shape your own opinion about them having that happen in like a, a safe setting with like a grown-up that is leading the conversation i think is the way to do it and like kathleen said discussing like what the legacy of these books books like this are um, and what the legacy should be and how we should look at them now i think that's all very important like all very important things to to talk about but like, I think that we really need as a society to give teenagers more credit. And I mean, the book is, it's not, it, it's a historical document at this moment. The way that it was first published and the way that it was first written before there were changes made and why there were changes made. And I think that you could talk about that in terms of publishing and what publishing has done in only small like baby steps to rectify systemic racism in the works that they've put out. I think that you could have a discussion about this book in school if you if you were a teacher who felt comfortable and confident in the ability of your students to discuss this book and even if they wanted to discuss this book because you know you have to when you're teaching something like this in a classroom you have to look at the faces that are in front of you and you might say we should talk about the legacy of this book because we should talk about xenophobia and racism and systemic racism and when this book came out and what it was like culturally at that time. But also look at those faces in front of you because some of them might not be comfortable yeah. talking about that in a classroom setting simply because they are people of color and they don't they don't want to confront those things in this room full of like 20 people that they might not feel entirely comfortable with, which is fine. So I'm just saying, you know, if you're going to teach this, you have to be like a really good teacher and aware yes. of the backgrounds and the needs of your students if you were to teach it in class. If you're reading it personally and you're a young person, you know what's really great is that you have the internet now and you can be like, wait a minute, this seems a little, you know, I'm not really comfortable with this. And you, you can look it up and you can start reading some really great essays and discussions about this book and its legacy and its history and what it means. And that's a good thing. Like you can educate yourself and you can make a decision like, I don't want to continue reading this book or I'm not going to support this book. And then the flip side to that is so many people have remade this book. You don't in some ways have to read this book if you're reading a lot of Agatha Christie. There are so many other authors who have taken the whole structure and lifted the plot because it is such an easily adaptable plot with so many variations that different types of writers can make that they have essentially rewritten it in a way that can appeal to, I think, any reader. I hope that makes sense. It does. And I'm grateful to both of you for sharing your thoughts on this. It's something that we've talked about on the podcast 
consistently over the last five years since I started it. And I'm still not always sure how to talk about it because it's so complicated. And so it's so refreshing anytime I have somebody on who's open to sharing and has their own perspective on it. I think what I've learned and what I'm still learning is that it's important to be able to hold both things at once. Like this book has a complicated legacy. It is a historical document and it's also an incredibly well-constructed mystery. And and there's a reason Mm -hmm. that people respond to it. And so like you said, Kathleen, having access to information about it should empower us as readers to make our judgments about it. I also think that if it is to be taught in schools, like my hope is that a teacher or a librarian, if a librarian is presenting it to students, will offer that context because I think that it's a real shame to not yes. give the background. I, I was just watching, um, there's the new Judy Bloom documentary on Amazon. I'm not sure if either of you have watched it, but. Oh, we're all going to see the movie, right? Yeah, well, oh, yes. I'm going, <laughs> I'm so excited. But also, I don't know, she has like an, she has a documentary yeah. on Amazon Prime. And I was obsessed with it. Obviously, I want to watch it again because I've covered so many of her books on the podcast. But one of the things that she was saying, and it's a little bit less relevant with And Then There Were None, just because it is a lot older than I think maybe some of the books that Judy was talking about. But she was saying how any book that's like more than five years old is historical fiction to kids and to Mm -hmm. teens because it's it's not their history. It's something that they can't remember. And again, as somebody who's been like wrestling with these questions for five years with this podcast, I was like, yes, that's it. Like any book is going to feel like a historical document to a kid unless it was written like the year before or it's something that, you know, is from a series they've been reading on an ongoing basis. And so it's almost like whether it's a book that's written in 1939 or a book that's written in 1975 or a book that's written in 2002, whatever, it's like we're coming back to these same questions if it's a kid or a teenager reading that book. Books can be really, they can be safe spaces for younger readers. But I, I also think that sometimes it's good if they're, if they're not safe spaces. Sometimes you need a book that will bring up difficult conversations so that kids can start to think about that. And so that they can start to talk about it and form their opinions and do some research and discover what it is about this book that's making them uncomfortable. Do you know what I mean? Like they have to learn how to speak for themselves. And so I think it's okay to have books where kids, you know, it's a safe book and they're like, I can explore this. But also if a book makes you uncomfortable, I think it's really cool to figure out why. Yeah. And then to make your choice about that book. And I'm with Liz. I think that we don't give kids enough credit for knowing what books they want to read and what they don't. And I think that they're pretty good self-censors when they're reading a book and they feel uncomfortable for whatever reason, they will stop. And I do think that teachers and librarians who assign certain books should realize that. And I'm very much a proponent of giving kids like the freedom to read what they want for class assignments. Like there are some books that you will assign because we need to talk about this book in terms of like structure, how it changed like literature, or here are some tropes, but also let the kids choose what books they want to read as well. Give them a couple of books on their own. You don't have to have read them, but if you say, I want you to read this book that you love, like pick this book on your own, you will get a better assignment out of it because you let them choose. You let them choose. And that goes for any type of book. I had a girl once who came up to me and she's like, I had to read Girl in Pieces for class, and it's not really my kind of book, and it was really sad. And I was like, oh, well. And she said, I really wanted to read The Summer I Turned Pretty, but my teacher told me that I, I couldn't because it wasn't serious enough. And you know what? That is that is also <laughs> offensive because let kids read what they want to read. Those books meant something to that student. Those were things that they were interested in and thinking about in their real life, and they got pleasure, enjoyment, and intellectual like fulfillment out of reading those books, right? Like who am I to say what's like serious literature that we should be reading? I'm, it's not me, read what you wanna read. You know, like why are we downplaying like certain books that are like, you shouldn't read that in class because that's like fluffy. And it's like, you know, and I, I think those are like larger conversations that, that we could have. Yeah, I'm teaching an undergrad writing class in historical fiction this semester. And I signed them an analysis paper where I basically was just like, read a piece of historical fiction and answer these questions. Every single one of them wrote about a fantasy 
historical fiction Mm -hmm. novel. And I had not heard of a single one of them. (laughs) And it made me feel very uncool. But I was like, okay, this is what they're excited about. This is obviously what's in the ether in this community. And um, it was interesting to see what they are reading. And they were obviously very excited to share that with me. So I think those are great points. And um, I'm glad we had this conversation to lay the groundwork for this book because I recognize that it's a difficult one um, for a lot of people to engage with. And I get that. I mean, there's, as we mentioned, like a racist legacy to this book. And also it is an extremely well-constructed mystery. So let's talk a little bit more about that. This is a book where eight strangers show up on an island called Soldier Island There are two other people on the island, Rogers and his wife, who are working in this house. So there are now 10 strangers here. They've never met except for Rogers and his wife. They have all come to this island on sort of mysterious terms. They've been invited by some people that they don't really know. Some of them are showing up because they need some money. Some of them are looking for different kinds of escape. And so we have all these 10 people. And Kathy and I think it was you who, who talked about just um, the way that Agatha Christie engages with her characters and invites readers to do the same. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if either of you can speak to if there's like one character of those 10 people that you found most interesting when reading this book. But the the school Vera. teacher. Vera. Who is I, like Vera. Yes, who's the, Vera <laughs> I like Vera. Yes. Yeah. Who's the last to die. Right. She's so interesting because, you know, the I feel like her secret more than any of the others is so personal and so dark. And you get you have this one impression of her when the book opens and it really you it really starts flipping as it goes on. Her character arc is just brilliantly done. Yeah. And I think that the fact that she is the last to die is just it's so perfect. Because she almost is, I, I feel like she is almost the protagonist of the book in a way. I don't know about anyone else, but like, I feel like her story really stuck with me the most. I think that Liz is right. I think that Vera is like a, a really clinching character for me as well. I think if you have like as in a writerly way, though, like I just want to talk about this terms of this book in like terms of like being a writer Yeah, <laughs> when you read it. a book and you're like, oh my God, how did they manage to keep track of all this? Like, yes, let's talk about, yeah. Like what happened? Like, how is this structured so tight that you want to keep reading? Because 10 characters is a lot of characters to like start, do you know what I mean? To start a book with, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's a big writerly burden to take on. And yet this is like the most read book of all time, right? So obviously we all like it. And how do you, how do you just take all that on? Like if Agatha Christie was writing today, would she, would she be the type of writer who had like the post-it notes like all over and like a giant like map wall with like one character leading to another and like, here's this red herring and then like, we're picking this one off first. Do you know, like what kind of writer do you think that she would be now? Well, I always wonder what kind of writer she was then even. Like, did she, I'm just so fascinated because she wrote so quickly and she wrote, so intricately that I'm like, did she, did she plot? She like, must have, yeah. In the same way that people do now, you know, like, and how, I'm just so, I'm fascinated by her brain. How did she come up with these twists that no one had ever done before? Like, I can't even imagine what that would be like to read something that broke all the rules of, of what mysteries were supposed to be. Yeah, I mean, she must have done quite a bit of plotting before she started. I've never written mystery because I like can't wrap my head around how I would plot out a mystery even with like two characters, let alone 10. <laughs> I don't understand. It's really hard. <laughs> you, you should write a mystery with Liz because she's very good at like, you know, figuring out okay. like spreadsheets and like the structure and like what you need to do. Cause I'd never, oh, no, no, you know, no. I read mysteries, but I never really, I hadn't really thought about them like structure wise until Liz and I started writing together. And you know, Liz is like, well, we're gonna need a spreadsheet first right and she was she like she knew tell me more about that process because that is fascinating and I'm curious how that works I love a spreadsheet too so I'm interested in the fact that you use spreadsheets but thinking about how Agatha Christie might be able to use a spreadsheet for and then there were none like imagine what she would have been able to do if she'd had Google Drive like she would have had so many different (laughs) ways to work on her plot but tell me more about your process and like any ways that it might connect to Agatha Christie. 
I feel like Agatha Christie would have not wouldn't have written as many books had she had the internet. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> to distract her. Yeah. So when we set out to write the Agathas, we were just sort of tossing around general ideas for a mystery, um, a girl disappearing, and like her creepy, shady stepfather, and you know things in that that nature that developed over time, and some of them changed completely, obviously by the end, but. Yeah, Kathleen and I were like, what does a mystery need? And I was like, that's a good question. So no, no, you knew, you knew, like, right, you knew, you knew, you knew. Well, I didn't You knew the tropes. No, I learned, we, (laughs) I have to say, I learned so much from our editor while writing these two books because I didn't, yeah, I know the tropes, yes, but I think like those you can pick up from reading things like the fact that it's important to have a true clue at the beginning of the book, which if you think about Agatha Christie does, you know, Kathleen mentioned all the objects in her books. And a lot of those end up being very important. And they're mentioned in a way that I've read a lot about how she like used red herrings to sort of uh, obscure the fact that she's also giving you a true clue in a scene. Like she would use a list of things and sort of put the clue in the middle and then center the scene around a red herring things like that. And, but it wasn't anything I had consciously thought about until our editor was like, you need a true clue in the first act. And I was like, oh, right. That makes sense. The fact that your clues have to sort of almost like a scavenger hunt, like lead, lead the reader from one thing to the next, to the next and engage them well enough that they're turning the pages while also like hopefully confusing them in a way, not like confusing them by making the writing not clear, but confusing them in terms of like who the ultimate bad guy is. All of those things, so many of them I learned while we were writing. When we started writing it too, and the whole name of the book and the way that Alice is the first girl to disappear really in Castle Cove. And that's something that she took from Agatha Christie's real life. Like that was the springboard when Liz and I were talking about like writing something different than we normally write, which is contemporary, realistic, sad, fiction and why don't we write something that no one would expect in secret and not tell anyone and exercise our writerly muscles and we'll try a mystery and so that's a great like story of Agatha Christie being spurned by her husband and then taking off and disappearing for what was it 11 days Liz Mm -hmm. and no one knowing where she was and you know that was a big story at the time and it was in newspapers and there was no internet so you know you had to wait for next day's edition of the newspaper like were there any clues where was she and then she turns up at a hotel registered under her husband's mistress's name which I think is really kind of badass and we thought that would kind of be that would be something that Alice Ogilvie would be sort of inspired by and probably any teenage girl would be like, "Mm -hmm. I'm really going to stick it to you for like cheating on me. So when I think of Liz and I writing the Agathas and then I think of Agatha Christie or the legacy of of Agatha Christie, it's sort of like these two girls love her works because she's a person who persevered in real life, right? And who created, you know, who wrote the books that she wanted to write. And so I think that they take inspiration from like that myth of Agatha Christie a lot and also when you're trying to solve a mystery in real life it really helps to try out some things you read about in mystery novels to figure out (laughs) who did it because who really knows how to like solve a mystery I don't well you've you two of you've managed to figure it out to write these books but (laughs) and maybe in your real life you don't know how (laughs) if my neighbor's wife disappeared I would have to read your book for some reminders on how to find her (laughs) well we, we were also like I think like very much in agreement in the beginning that we didn't we, we didn't want them to have them be experts because who really would be an expert and that would be a lot more fun to read about and a lot more fun to have the characters discover about themselves like their their capacity to figure something out and to not give up and we wanted them to be kind of boneheads also so the book would be a little bit more fun to read like and that they would have to make mistakes because you watch like mystery shows on TV and they have teen characters and like somebody's always like a super intelligent like computer hacker who secretly works for the CIA like you know 14 years old (laughs) and has all these skills and it's like what if you don't like what if you literally don't what tools do you have at your disposal as like a 17 year old to solve the disappearance of Brooke Donovan yeah right and as as you list out some of those elements of your books of the Agathas 
I think about a lot of the things I noticed when I was doing my reread of, and then there were none. Like, they're making mistakes. They have, like, ideas about who it is, and they realize that they were totally wrong. I also think that, as you were talking about the red herring trope, it reminds me of how kind of interesting it is that, and then there were none, like, openly comments about red herrings. Mm -hmm. Like, it's sort of comments on the genre itself in a way that I don't know that I've seen before. Like, the phrase red herring is used in this poem that is the crux of this whole book. And the characters are, like, actively talking about what the red herring might be. And I don't think I've ever read a mystery where the characters are just, like, openly, like, ah, yes, that classic red herring that we would see in any mystery. (laughs) Like, that's kind of, it's kind of bold to do that as an author and to remind your reader that, like, I'm probably going to try to trick you. (laughs) Right. I think that's the juiciness of like reading the book. It's like yeah. the, the pleasure that you feel knowing that you're the reader is like another like mouse for Agatha Christie to play with, right? And to tease and she'll tease you and you you're willing to like go along with this game for the payoff. Maybe that's the crux of all like mystery books in a sense is that you have to be an active participant in the plot line as a reader. Mhm. That's yeah. very true. I always tell people in my reading community, people in my podcast community that like I am not the kind of reader that is always trying to stay ahead of a mystery or a thriller. Like I am not trying to figure it out. I kind of want to get the clues at the same speed that the characters are getting the clues. Whereas I know a lot of mystery and thriller readers are like anxious to figure it out first. Mm -hmm. And so I guess that makes me like I I guess I'm like putty in a mystery author's hands because I, for the most (laughs) part, I'm like, yes, like I too like this character. I'm very surprised about what's going on. I will say that like I did figure out that it was Justice Wargrave um, in this book. And then, of course, when he shows up dead in quotes, Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, yeah, like I guess he's not. But and then in the end, we get this crazy twist that he had faked his own death. And there's this really intense postscript from him where he explains his logic behind all of these murders and how he pulled it all off. But I was like a little satisfied that I was fairly convinced that it was him when I got to the end. I was like, good job. You figured it out. But you you keep reading because you're invested in the characters and the plot. Totally. And I, I think that, like Liz and I talked about that too when we were writing that it was like, okay, some people are going to figure this out like right away. But that's fine. Because some people like to. But regardless of that, we have to make them keep reading. And the way that you do that is made by making really deeply interesting characters that people are invested in, right? And also trying to figure out who any of the characters, who in the book is also trying to figure it out. Like, how are they going to do it? So for us, it's like, you have to think about, okay, they might have figured out who did it in the Agathas, but now we have to give them the pleasurable experience of watching Alice and Iris figure it out Mm -hmm. and making their backstories compelling enough that they'll want to keep reading. There's also this undercurrent in And Then There Were None About Class. Mm -hmm. And as I'm remembering the Agathas, there's also quite a bit about class in that book, like, you know, the haves and the have-nots in Castle Cove. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just... Again, like it's been a few months since I read the Agathas. I'm really looking forward to reading the second book. But as I reflect on my, and then there were none reread, and I'm thinking about the Agathas again, I'm like, oh yeah, you packed a lot of references to these books right into your series that references her. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we did our best. I mean, it was really fun actually going back through different Agatha Christie books and sort of pulling out things that we could use. You know, like we have the teenagers who... People, you know, don't pay a lot of attention to because they don't think they need to. You know, teenage girls are often sort of ignored. And so is Miss Marple because she's an older woman. You know, it's the it's sort of like the two sides of the same coin. So it it was really fun being able to like pull in a lot of references to her books. I think, too, in the the, like the issue of class and, and then there were none and especially like the mystery genre. I mean, that's that's kind of a classic element because you. You always have people of immense power and privilege who have the ability to keep secrets buried. And then you have the people who work for them, who know the secrets, but don't have the ability to spill them, right? And then you have the clash of like their morals, like, you know, or revenge and like mistrust and betrayal. And so I, I, I like, you know, I think reading mysteries and reading and then there were none, you could have a really good discussion about like class and privilege. Mm -hmm. absolutely 
question about your just how you approach plotting mysteries. Do you know every twist in your mystery before you actually get into writing it, or do they sort of present themselves as you go? I have to know for my own writer brain. Um, we knew some of them. We definitely knew the end, and it stayed the same. And I think that's at least for how I I have ever written a mystery like that is important to know the end. But there were several twists in the Agathas that came later during revision, some of them right before our revisions were due. <laughs> and I think it's really, I, I mean, I would find it difficult at least. I know there are some plotters out there who are incredible and can like literally plot every twist and turn before they even start writing. But a lot of, a lot of plot to me is like discovery through, it's discovered through character. So like as you're writing, you know, you get to know the characters better and better. And you're like, oh, well, this character might do this and give us a nice little twist. And I wouldn't have known that had I not gotten to this point of the book. We wrote the plot and we had chapter by chapter since it's dual POV, like what should happen. But we had to leave room for flexibility as well, that things could possibly be changed if they needed to be changed, you know, as we were writing. And I think you have to have some flexibility. Although I know writers who specifically only write like thriller and mystery and they, they don't even they don't even start a draft until they have worked out that plot, like to a T on their spreadsheet, like over and over for months so that they don't have to go through what um, Liz and I as newbies <laughs> went through because there were there were also a lot of like seat of our pants things like adding the second grandmother after I listened to like this real life radio podcast because our editor was like, this doesn't work. And we're like, oh my God, <laughs> you have to leave some room for flexibility. And I think that's probably where like maybe the fun part of the Agathos comes in. I, I mean, I think the night in question is a little bit darker than the Agathos, don't you Liz? Mm -hmm. And so I do. The, the two mysteries are a little bit, I think a little bit more psychologically heavy and really have to do with, it's not a spoiler, like the town of Castle Cove mm -hmm. and, its, okay. and its history. And its history. So yeah. we didn't, did we write a spreadsheet for the night in question? I feel like it's all a blur for me because we did that. It is such a <laughs> we blur. Had, we <laughs> didn't know that we were going to get like a second book. And so then, then they were like, yes, you are. And by the way, give us a draft in like what, three months? And we were like- A month, and, it was like a month and a half. <laughs> and we were like, what? But we had, you know, the cool thing fast. was we, when we were writing the Agathos and things were like going well, you know, after, we found out that it was going to be a book and it was no longer going to be just our secret project with me and my good friend, Liz. We left little crumbs in the Agathas that if we got a second book, we would be able to develop further. Oh, I'm so, excited yes, to like, read. Like Mona Moody, right? Mm -hmm. And some, some other things. We, we left like little crumbs. And we did leave there are crumbs that we continue in the night in question just in case someday we get like a third book because you I mean mm -hmm. you never know you never know so I want to say like back to and then there were none yeah and our discussion about like what you read and why you read and how you read it and how you read like critically and when I said if that book is something that you're like I don't I don't want to support in any way like maybe the legacy of this book and that there were other books that are essential retellings I really like Kate Williams' <laughs> Never Coming Home that came out last summer, and I wish more people would read it because it's 10 influencers on an island. <laughs> and I really like it. And I, I really, I really like it. And I think that sounds great. Read. You know, and I'm like, yeah, it's a fun read. There's so many ways to tell this story now that, it, I mean, the basic structure and the plot of the novel, it doesn't, it doesn't age. I'm going to go add that to my personal TBR immediately and put it on hold at the library. So thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> and you very naturally segued us into <laughs> um, my standard book recommendations segment. So are there any other titles that you might recommend to our listeners? Any genre works? I am currently reading a book entitled How to Find a Missing Girl. I'm reading it as, for a blurb and it comes out. I'm very excited for that book. Are you blurbing it too? No. It is really good, Kathleen. I am very, I actually uh, DM'd the author on Instagram yesterday and I was like, I love your book. It's by um, Victoria Wolsock, W-L-O-S-O-K. And I think it comes out this like, oh, September. 
it is a YA mystery. It has like a little bit of a podcast format, but mostly it's told in the first person. It's a girl whose sister goes missing and then her ex-girlfriend goes missing. And she she started, which I actually really love, a an amateur detective company with her two friends. And they take on like cases in their high school. And then once this new girl goes missing, they clearly like start exploring that. The writing is so great. Victoria is I think 18 I think she's or 19, 19 years now, old. Yeah. yeah. It, it I am so impressed wow. by her. I could cannot cannot say how impressed by. I mean, when I was 19, the thought of writing a book was I could never have done it. And to write a book so well and a mystery at that. I'm like, wow, you are amazing. Wow, I'm going to try to get her on the podcast. She you sounds should. like she'd be a really cool guest. Oh, yes. I think she'd be a great one. She makes like great TikToks too. Like she's a very engaging mm-hmm. personality. And- and I hope that lots of people read the book because I definitely want to read it, especially after hearing Liz. And I, I love the fact that they're so young and then here comes this book, right? And I think that that's amazing. This is like a little off topic, but when we talk to adults about reading YA, right? Like, oh my God, you're an adult, right? you reading YA. And then it's like, why are adults writing YA? And look at Victoria. She's a YA writing YA. Like that's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like that's so perfect. And no person ever says when adults read YA and they're like, well, this, this sounded really teenagery to me. Yeah. And it's like, well, there are teenagers. No one ever says like about an adult book, you know, this adult book sounds really adulty. Like yeah. I wrote this totally adult book. This is, I just, uh, it didn't ring true to me about adults. It's such a weird like yeah. <laughs> business so that Liz and I have found ourselves in. Yeah. Yeah. Those categories are pretty specific. Is there anything else that you want to plug Kathleen or Kate Williams is the one that you want to lock in there? I'm going to plug Never Coming Home because I had a really pleasurable, fun, like juicy time reading that book that also through the characters, you know, really talks about the impact of social media on our lives and the construction of personality in general these days through social media. But it's just a fun read and it's fast paced. And I, you know, going back to And Then There Were None, you know, that structure works really well. Like there's something that's very exciting about that structure of having like strangers trapped together and they start dying. And like who's left and who did it? I love that structure. Maybe someday Liz and I will write that book. Yes, I I would love to read it. Well, I'm going, I'm going to add both of your recommendations to my personal TBR and I will link them in the show notes for this episode. We've been talking about the Agathas. We've been talking about the night in question, which is out today as this episode goes live. But for listeners who have not read the Agathas and don't really know what to expect, could you share a little bit about what they might be able to look forward to when they grab the Agathas and then the night in question? So the the Agathas is the first book in the series. It is about two girls, Alice and Iris, who come together to solve the disappearance of the richest and most popular girl in their high school. Um, When the book opens, Alice has just returned, and Kathleen alluded to this earlier, has just returned from a five-day disappearance. She has just returned to school after being on house arrest, after coming home after she disappeared for five days. And she disappeared after her. she found out that her ex-boyfriend and her best friend were dating. She comes back to school. All of her former friends have turned on her because they are like, you wasted so much of our time and our resources and we were worried about you when you disappeared. You showed back up into town. You wouldn't tell anyone where you've been. You suck. So she's all alone for the first time in her life. And she gets assigned a tutor to try to catch up with school. And her tutor is Iris Adams, who is Kathleen's character. Alice's former best friend forever, who stole her boyfriend, Steve, disappears on Halloween night after having a fight with Alice at a Halloween party. And the book is about Alice and Iris coming together to solve the disappearance of Brooke Donovan. And also along the way, figuring out some secrets about Castle Cove, the sleepy seaside town where they live. And there are a lot of secrets in Castle Cove. And one of the real mysteries of the book is about how Alice and Iris come to be friends. They're from very different backgrounds. They're both harboring their own personal secrets. I do like to say that it's a friendship story wrapped in a mystery. We were very, I think, determined not to have like a romance in the book. We really wanted it to be about two girls finding strength in their friendship and finding strength in themselves through that friendship and figuring out what happened to Brooke Donovan. And in the night in question, we picked them up four months later at the annual Sadie Hawkins dance, which 
ends with a deadly incident, which leads them down, of course, because now they're master snoopers, um, down another, <laughs> the path of another mystery that leads them to another mystery that ties mm. into more secrets in Castle Cove. And this time, because they've been deeply affected by the events of the first novel, they're still grappling with some personal issues on their own and having some relationship tensions with each other as they're, you know, growing up and thinking about things like the future and college and what they're going to do with their lives. So we wrapped it all up. We've got some um, old Hollywood glamour in the night in question. We've got a road trip. We've got lots of secrets. We have some red herrings. There are some true clues. There might be, is there a simmering romance in there? Possibly this time, maybe. Spike? Spike? A bit, a bit. So, mm-hmm. so we're excited for readers to pick up the Agathas, which comes out in paperback in a week, and then head into the night in question. Well, congratulations on both books. As I told you when we started recording, we actually chose the Agathas as the pick for the SWR, that's the shit we read book club a couple of months ago, and we really enjoyed it. So I know that you already have a lot of built-in readers for the night in question, and I'm excited to see what happens with Alice and Iris next. And I appreciate you taking the time. Also, please thank your cats for joining us for this episode. (laughs) Listeners, it was very hard for you not to comment on the two adorable cats that were very present for this entire conversation. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad they were here to be part of this. You know, we were really excited because, Liz, what happens to Alice in the night in question? Speaking of cats. Oh, yes. She falls in love. She gets a cat. She gets a cat. (laughs) Well, I'm I'm happy for everybody involved. And uh, clearly you had some good feline inspiration in your own homes for that. Thank you so much for chatting with me about all things Agatha Christie. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. <laughs>